Welcome to the HBG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chase. We are Bible teachers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we're excited to get into the Word and to share it with others. All right, well, uh, welcome back. We are going to be looking at the Gospel of Luke, the good news from Luke today which we did last of the four Gospels because it is part one of two with Acts being part two. So Lord willing, next week we'll get into Acts, but figured we would do Luke and Acts together since they're by the same author. If you read the introduction to those two books, you can see that they are both by the same guy, writing to the same guy or for the same guy. And Luke himself is far different than the other three. Uh, the other three that we've read so far come from a Jewish background. And now Mark's gospel, however, doesn't have as many references to the Old Testament, but it's our understanding he would have been a Jewish person. Luke, on the other hand, as the author of this gospel, is a Gentile. Um, he is coming from a pagan background. When he writes this, I do believe he is a follower of Jesus at this point. But he is coming from a completely different perspective than the other three gospel writers. And the reason why that's important to take note of is because of the first four verses of Luke. It's it's really cool. We're going to read the first four verses, Luke chapter 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. And so while we're there, just real quick, we yeah. can read Acts chapter 1 and see how similar this is. So, so Luke is saying, I'm not an eyewitness, but I sat down and interviewed the eyewitnesses, and now I'm writing this account for you, Theophilus. We, by the way, don't know who Theophilus is exactly. He may have been an official. He's called most excellent Theophilus. And um, he could have been someone who was sponsoring Luke's work in the sense of helping pay for the production of a, a work, which would have not been cheap in those days. But in Acts 1, in verses 1 through 3, he says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So if you haven't read Luke and you pick up the book of Acts, you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, what did Jesus do and teach? You know, what's going on? And so these are two volumes of the same big work that have similar themes, similar style. And um, it's just cool to see that these two go together. The other possibility for Theophilus, by the way, his name literally means friend of God. and so Lover of God. Um, friend of God, actually, also is, a, is one of the translations. But he actually, some people speculate that it's possible he's writing to a large group of people that are lovers or friends of God. Um, and so, anyways, for what that's worth, um, that's also a possibility for who Theophilus is, maybe in a, in a grander scale. So... Um, Luke, though, is just so unique from the beginning, because as we consider the other three gospel accounts, as you think about Matthew, he opens up with genealogy. He just kind of jumps right into it. Um, Mark opens up with, in the beginning, um, or sorry, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then in John's account, you get, 
uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so they're all kind of jumping right into the story, but Luke almost writes like four verses, essentially, where it's like the introduction to his letter to Theophilus. And he's making the point that he wasn't there. He didn't see all these things, but there were a lot of people who did. And he is going to talk to them about those things and write down the stories. And that's really important for us because guess what? We were not there. We did not see Jesus walk on the water or feed the 5,000 or heal a blind man. And we didn't see the apostles go out and cast out demons. We didn't see any of that. But neither did Luke. But he talked to and investigated thoroughly people who did see and do those things. And so he's really kind of an investigative journalist as he goes about writing and compiling this account to uh, Theophilus. And it's kind of cool to think about him, I mean, especially in these first two chapters of Luke. Um, they, there's some just extra little stories that you're like, wow, like how would Luke have known that? Well, we do believe Luke is writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he, God can tell Luke whatever he wants to tell him. But at the same time, God often uses human efforts to accomplish his will. And it's, I think fairly likely that Luke would have at some point interviewed Mary and gotten from her some of these accounts of what exactly happened when the angel came to her and her song of praise, uh, the Magnificat, as it's called, in um, Luke 2. And so it's really cool to see, or excuse me, in Luke 1, um, it's cool to think about Luke compiling these different accounts, putting them together, as he says, in an orderly way or in, um, in chapter 1 in the introduction. But the thing that we want to see as we look at Luke's gospel is like with Matthew and Mark and John, there are different things that Luke will emphasize from his perspective and background that are helpful for us. One of those things is that Luke is in many ways a historian. He's also a physician. Uh, we know from, I believe, the book of Colossians. He's called the beloved physician. But he's writing in many ways, like you said, Chase, from a historical perspective as a Gentile. And so, like for instance, in the beginning of Luke 3, He'll say, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Licinius tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. <laughs> That's a lot of historical references. Yeah. But it puts the events that Luke is recording in their time in history. And Luke has more references like that than some of the other gospel writers do, which is just kind of cool to think about. Yeah, and just ask yourself, if all those names and places were fake, he's really doing himself no favors by recording <laughs> right. that or including that in it. And so the idea that this was some later legend uh, is foolish um, because we can put bookmarks from history on that these people were real and ruled in the ways that Luke said that they did. Um, and historians and Bible apologetic people are coming to realize that, and it's kind of cool to see them catching up with what the Bible has already been saying for thousands of years now. <laughs> yeah, so some of the other themes that we're going to see Luke hit on as he goes through, one is that he writes a lot about money and possessions in this gospel. I mean, certainly not exclusively Luke, but Jesus has a lot of different conversations and a lot of different accounts where money or possessions kind of take center role. And generosity is a big theme, uh, in particular to the poor in this gospel. There are several different times in this gospel where Jesus will sit down to eat with people. 
there's kind of these Jesus at the dinner table scenes, which is kind of cool to think about, just sitting down and having these conversations with Jesus. And some of them go very well, typically the ones where Jesus is sitting down with the lowly. And some of them go very poorly, where Jesus is confronting people at dinner and telling parables against them uh, mm-hmm. while they're sitting down to eat together. And he's like, hey, Jesus, you're offending us. And he's like, I'm offending these people too. Like, it's really interesting to see the contrast of the different dinner scenes in the Gospel of Luke. Going with that, Stephen's mentioned some about the parables, and we, we've talked about those in depth in the other podcasts so far. But Luke seems to have, like, even more parables. He, he just mm-hmm. kind of piles them one on top of another. And they're spread out pretty consistently throughout the entire gospel. But um, I don't know about you, but once you kind of understand the rhythm and purpose of parables, I get kind of excited when I come across one, especially the ones that are kind of shorter and just kind of one or two sentences or words. Um, it's really cool to see those, and so keep your eye out for those. Yeah, and and you also see Luke emphasize the importance of prayer throughout. Um, there's a couple of times like he'll tell us that, when Jesus was baptized, it was while he was praying that the Spirit descended on him. Or at the Transfiguration, he goes up on the mountain to pray, and that's when that happens. So there's some key moments that Luke says, hey, by the way, Jesus was praying when this happened. Yep. And that's helpful to see the emphasis there. And remember, a lot of these themes are going to continue right into the book of Acts. So there, there are themes in Luke, the Gospel of Luke. But they're also going to be themes in the book of Acts. Another one is an emphasis on the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, I went through one time, especially in the book of Acts, and just made a little marginal note every time the Spirit is mentioned. And it's like almost every page in the book of Acts. It's really interesting seeing how frequently Luke will tie things into the work of God's Spirit and what he is doing in the world, uh, both in the gospel and in the uh, book of Acts as well. And as far as we can tell, too, um, Luke's gospel, I mean, in all the gospels, Jesus dealt with the outcasts, but in Luke's gospel especially, you see him dealing with women um, a good bit and other kinds of people that the rest of the rabbis and the rest of the teachers wouldn't have had any dealings with or would have ever dealt with. And Luke seems to focus in a lot on those type of encounters. Um, And that's really cool to see because there's a lot of people today that normally people don't give the time of day those would be the type of people that Jesus exactly would have went after. And so there's some good lessons for us to learn from that as well. Yes. So the the book of Luke it can be divided different ways. Honestly, of the Gospels, it's the one I have the hardest time outlining with clarity it, and knowing exactly where it breaks up. It's the largest out of word count, if I'm not mistaken. It's, mm-hmm. And if I'm wrong on that, it feels like it. <laughs> like yeah. it, is, it is a long read. Some of these chapters are really long. It has fewer chapters than Matthew. Right. But it, uh, the chapters are really long sometimes, yeah. which that was not Luke's doing. That's a yeah. later division that came along. But um, chapters 1 and 2 really go together in Luke. Um, all of the Gospels include John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, uh, but he doesn't come up until chapter 3, uh, or at least his ministry doesn't until chapter 3. But Luke has some very interesting additional material mm-hmm. in the first two chapters of his Gospel. A lot more detail about the birth of John the baptizer Mm -hmm. and the prophecies that accompanied that. A lot more detail about the prophecies and prelude to the birth of Jesus. There's kind of two parallel stories that are being told about Zechariah and the promise of John and then Mary and the promise of Jesus and some, some differences there that are really interesting to look at as these two stories are being laid aside each other. 
And then, of course, the birth itself. This is where we have the shepherds out in the field, um, Jesus being presented at the temple with um, Simeon and Anna reacting to um, and, and in a way prophesying uh, over the birth of this, you know, this baby Jesus. Um, and we have the lone childhood story of Jesus in, at the end of Luke 2, where he's 12 years old and he gets left behind at the temple. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're amazed at, you know, his, his learning and his questions. Um, and so we know more about, I mean, you still don't know a lot about the uh, infanthood and the childhood of Jesus, but Luke gives us the most information about those things. Yeah. And so that gives way into chapter 3, where Jesus will begin his ministry, but like the other Gospels, it starts off by telling us about John the Baptist. And uh, Stephen already referenced uh, verses 1 and 2, where Luke will come in and insert the historical people of the day, um, and so that it kind of gives us the place, time, and context of the scene. And John the Baptist will come on the scene, and man, is he preaching fire. Uh, Literally, he is preaching uh, fire. Uh, In in Luke 3, 7, he began to say to the crowds, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And uh, there will be people that come up to him and ask him, what does that look like for them? And he will tell them, and and like the other three Gospels, uh, that will lead John into talking about the one that's coming after him. Um, that's going to baptize them in the Holy Spirit and fire. There's that uh, role of the Holy Spirit is again. And so that begins Jesus' um, ministry whenever he is baptized by John the Baptist. But what's really cool about Luke's gospel, remember, he's a Gentile. He actually also has a genealogy of Jesus that he inserts after Jesus is baptized. It's at the end of Luke 3. But what is different about his, opposed to what happened in Matthew's, is he traces Jesus all the way back to Adam mm-hmm. in Genesis, the first chapter. And if there's one overwhelming point we need to get from that is Adam was a real person. And Jesus believed Adam was a real person in the way he talked about him in Matthew 19 and talked about those events in Matthew 19. But even Luke, in his recording and being an inspired gospel writer, knows that Adam and the people that we read about in Genesis are 100% real and that we all descended through them. And there's an attack on that theory now, um, but I think the scriptures are clear about that. Yeah. And so it's interesting to see how Luke introduces Jesus in chapter 4. We have the temptation. They're in a slightly different order than in Matthew, but the same three temptations. Um, But Jesus has an introductory sermon that he gives in Luke 4 at Nazareth, and he's rejected there. But it's interesting that he has Jesus reading from Isaiah 61. And this is just really cool. Um, and Luke 4, verse 17, we'll start in 16. Uh, and he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
and then he dropped the mic. Yeah, pretty <laughs> that's much. Like, yeah. That's a, um, amazing. To, to think about being there that day and that moment where Jesus begins his ministry and says this ministry of God's spirit proclaiming good news, which is that word for gospel that we've been using, to the poor, um, proclaiming liberty to the captives. It may be uh, a reference to the year of Jubilee um, in the hmm. from the Old Testament feasts. Um, it's just really cool to think about how many things are coming together yeah. when Jesus begins his ministry. And he's aware of that, but his hometown is like, who is this guy? Yeah. What's going well, on? And the focus of his ministry from that from that prophecy, as you've already emphasized, the poor, captives, blind, oppressed. What a group of winners, you know. And but that's exactly the idea. That's that's who Jesus is after. He's not a, he's not after the people who think they've got it all together. He's after these people who are poor in spirit, and we've already emphasized that. And that sets up perfectly what Jesus is going to do the rest of the book. That's right. Um, he, he's going to go after those exact people. And um, that really gives us um, into, at the end of chapter 4 where Jesus goes in and he's healing Simon Peter's mother-in-law um, and many other people as well. So well, it, it's a beautiful introduction to the idea of who Jesus is and what he's about. Yeah, and we won't have time to you know review every account here. But I wish we did. But just glancing over the next few chapters... I mean, even in chapter 5, you've got the healing of a leper, who was the very definition of outcast. You've got him healing a paralyzed man. He's calling Matthew, who's a tax collector, and he's getting questioned about that. Um, He's getting questioned about fasting, and there's these different questions that come up to him. Um, He chooses 12 apostles, which includes fishermen, a tax collector, and a zealot, (laughs) and a traitor. and, and not, so, not in a good way. Yeah. So it's really interesting to think about how this theme of Jesus going and giving good news to the outcasts is just going to continue all the way through the gospel. Yeah. You know what I find interesting, Stephen? In, in Luke chapter 6, you have what sounds like the Sermon on the Mount, mm-hmm. but it's a, it's just a little bit different. Um, it's got a little di- different a sound shorter. to it. Yeah, exactly. And um, what likely happened, my, my thinking is, is Jesus was likely teaching this in all kinds of different places. Oh, yeah. um, and you see him say... The things that, like for instance, the cutting off of the right hand, plucking out the eye, that's actually repeated twice in Matthew's gospel. And it's not because he was just recorded the same time Jesus said it. It's because Jesus was probably saying it all over the place. When you got a good gospel meeting sermon, you preach it all over the place. <laughs> that's right. right. you got to go all over the place. And so Luke is preaching or recording a preaching of Jesus that was likely just in a different place than the Sermon on the Mount, but it was the same stuff. And that's yeah. not shocking because this was Jesus' movement. And it ends with the same thing that Matthew 7 ended with um, about a wise and a foolish builder, those who uh, hear the words of Jesus and act on them uh, versus people who don't. And mm-hmm. so that also is very t- um, very telling of the kind of people that are going to follow Jesus or who will not. Yes. The next several chapters of Luke 7 through the first part of 9 are filled with Jesus help, again, helping the lowly, um, healing various people. Uh, many of these are also recorded in Matthew and Mark in particular. Again, that's why we call Matthew, Mark, and Luke the synoptics. They kind of see together. They have a lot of the same accounts. Luke has some extra stuff here. One is in Luke 7 where he heals. There's another resurrection account of Jesus's. He heals uh, a widow's son who's died, uh, a widow from Nain. And uh, so that's another uh, resurrection account. 
Um, in chapter 8, we have a small collection of parables. It's smaller than the collection in Mark 4 and Matthew 13. But again, Luke has more overall parables, and his are just spread out, and many times they're part of these conversations he's having at dinner or having with the people who are coming to him and questioning him. Um, Jesus sends out two different groups in Luke, and that can be a little bit confusing because Jesus sends out the 12 in Matthew and Mark. Jesus sends out the 12 in Luke 9, but he's also going to end up sending out a group of 70, or 72, depending on your translation, in Luke 10. So kind of like the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, it's easy to kind of blend those together. But Luke tells us that there is two different groups that he sends out at these different times. Yeah, and that's important to notice um, because Jesus has a lot of workers we don't know about. And that's actually something Jesus will have to say to, to John, uh, the, the one of the sons of Zebedee, at one point. But Jesus says in Luke 10 to the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Um, we got to be asking God for help as we go out into this world and try and preach and teach to it. But also realize that there are so few laborers in a world that has a lot of work to be done. And so are we going to sign up? Are we going to be the ones that go out and teach the world about Jesus? And you also see some wisdom. Jesus sent them out in pairs, it says in Luke 10, um, the, the, the 70 that, that, that he sends out. And they weren't going by themselves. They had a partner with them. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. And the same will be true of his 12 disciples as well. Mm-hmm. And, and um, actually backing up just slightly, um, there's a statement in Luke 9 that I think is important and kind of the big pictures of the book, kind of like three big movements in in chapters 3 through the first part of 9. We've had the early ministry of Jesus, but in Luke 9 and verse 51, it says, and again, we're we're not like we're about halfway through the book here, and he says, Luke 9 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And that image of Jesus setting his face, I mean, it's like Man, it's go time. Yeah. Like, this is going to be a war. This is going to be a battle, but he sets his face. Yeah. My to translation go says he's determined to go. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do like the idea of him setting his face, but it still presents the same idea that this is what he's determined to go and do. And that's Jesus' will, and no one's going to stand in the way of that. Yes. And so, really, this next big chunk of the book, because um, he's not going to get into Jerusalem actually until halfway through chapter 19. Chapter 19, verse uh, 28, is when he's going to actually come into the city. But these stories in between, you know, chapter 9, verse 51, and chapter uh, 19, verse 28, are going to, in some ways, be on the road. Um, They're going to happen in different places, but Jesus is going to be going to different locations. I mean, Mm -hmm. the first story is, after he sets his face to go to Jerusalem, is in Samaria, where a Samaritan village doesn't accept him. And James and John, the sons of thunder, are ready to barbecue him. They're like, we want to call down fire from heaven? And he says, no, I didn't come to destroy people's lives. I came to save them. Um, and so this is uh, really important. Um, well, let's see here. I might be mi- missing, no, missing up to a you're, you're not. There's a textual variant there. So, okay, so yeah. my version has a verse 56. Stevens doesn't. So I got he's you. quoting yeah, something yeah. that's there, just not in the manuscripts that he's reading from. Yes. Um, but Which I think this is interesting because Luke is going to go on to record John coming back to Samaria in the book of Acts 
in chapter 8 when Peter and John are sent there mm-hmm. to lay their hands on people and give them uh, gifts of the Spirit. It's really cool to see and think about. I don't know if it was the same exact town or not, but like the last time, one of the last times John was yeah. in Samaria, he was like, let's let's destroy the place. And, it, and now he's going to minister. He was now. also one of those disciples that was there in John 4, whenever Jesus was there with the woman at the well. And Jesus is making a similar point that he's making in these chapters that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers, the laborers are few. And they're just wanting to overlook the Samaritans. And then John comes full circle. So that is really cool to see. Yeah. But uh, in chapter 10, um, Jesus will send these 70 out. They will come back to him, and um, they'll even say in joy, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And I think that's really cool to see that what these people that Jesus sent out had a hand in was casting down Satan. Um, and that's what the Lord's church is able to do. As we resist sin, as we unite together, we are casting Satan down as well. And also in chapter 10, there's a couple of famous stories. Of the one we're probably most familiar with is the Good Samaritan. Yes. And Jesus is asked uh, by this lawyer, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And uh, finally, the lawyer will ask a more straightforward question, which is, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus launches into this beautiful um, story uh, that ends up the Samaritan is the hero of it. Right. Um, we, we read through Good Samaritan and just like, oh, yeah, the Good Samaritan. This is an upside-down story yeah. in Jesus' day. A Good Samaritan? What? And, and it's meant to kind of upset some of the social prejudice that was going on in those days. And that should be a lesson for us as well. Sometimes it's the unlikely, again, the outcasts, the people that we might look down on, that Jesus is holding up as, no, these, this is the one that God wants. This is the one that God's looking to, and that actually does better than the priest and the Levite mm-hmm. in the story. Yep. And so as we get into the next section of Luke, again, it's hard to uh, outline all of the teachings of Jesus, but Jesus is dealing with some increased conflict as he goes through uh, these chapters in Luke 11. We have one of the uh, dinner scenes in, in chapter 11, verse 37, and um, Jesus is questioning these Pharisees um, and, and condemning them, even as he's reclining in one of their houses. <laughs> um, and he's telling people to watch out for the leaven of them. Some of the other parables, kind of like the parable of the Good Samaritan is only in Luke. Uh, in Luke 12, you've got the parable of the rich fool. Oh, that's the right. The man who yep. thinks that, uh, oh, I'm going to have years and years to enjoy all my stuff. But he's just he's basically hoarding. He's yeah. not giving it to people who need it. And then his life is required of him that night. And so he dies very suddenly. Um, there's other interesting uh, things about the, the times, interpreting the signs of the times. Uh, you've got the parable of the barren fig tree, which I think is interesting in Luke in, 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 in um, chapter 13 because it's given a little more time. <laughs> uh, it's given another year. The fertilizer is put on it, and there's another opportunity given for repentance. Yeah, and uh, that's also Luke chapter 13, one of the most straightforward places where Jesus talks about repentance. I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's Luke thirteen three. Super basic and foundational to following Jesus. You got to repent. You got to turn your life around. You got to stop doing those things that Jesus said you can't do anymore. And if you don't, you're going to perish. That's the result for you. Yeah. 
In Luke 14, you have a couple of parables that deal with feasting and banquets again, um, and yeah. people being cast out of those or rejected. The parable of the big dinners in there, that's one of my favorites, uh, that Jesus talks about this guy who he has this enormous dinner that he invites everyone in for, but all these people have these different excuses as to why they're not going to come. And it'll end with the master saying, uh, go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them all to come in so that my, hi- my house may be filled. Or I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. And so he invites others in. And you kind of see a glimpse of really what the book of Acts is going to be about. As the Jews reject the Christ, many of the Gentiles will come in. And so we're all there to dine with Jesus. It's really cool. Yeah. At the end of Luke 14, there's an important passage about the cost of following Jesus. And a couple of many parables there about building a tower or going to war and how you've got to think that through before you make those decisions. And so there's this great seriousness connected with following Jesus. But I think it's really interesting that that's followed by Luke 15, which is all really kind of a three-in-one big parable. Um, and again, one of the most famous stories, the, what we call the prodigal son, um, is actually three parables kind of in yep. one, the lost sheep the lost coin, and what we might say is the parable of the lost sons. Because mm-hmm. um, one son, the younger one, is more famous. He goes out and wastes everything, which is that word prodigal, is the word idea of wasteful. Mm-hmm. But the older son is actually more the emphasis of the parable because that he represents the Pharisees who do not appreciate Jesus welcoming the outcasts exactly. back in. And the parable ends with this question to the older brother who is not happy that his younger brother is getting a feast. There's another feast in this parable. Um, well, after he's come back and repented, and uh, it, or it doesn't end on a question, it just is the father talking to the older son saying, it's fitting to celebrate and be glad for your this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And it's just so cool to see, again, how Jesus tells these parables and it fits in with all the themes that we're talking about, of the bringing in of the outcast. And in this case, of course, the penitent outcast who sees his great need. You see the Father's great compassion. You see these beautiful pictures of God. But it's also being used to get the religious leaders of Jesus' day to think about their own rejection of the outcast and the bad attitudes that they were showing when Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners. And they're despising him for that. And Jesus is saying, no, this is what God's kingdom is all about. And again, these themes will continue right into the book of Acts. Yeah. Uh, one other noteworthy story here in Luke's gospel in chapter 16 is of the rich man and Lazarus. Again, unique to the gospel of Luke. And this story kind of gives us a glimpse. Is It's a parable. It's debated on whether or not it's a parable. But regardless, it gives us a glimpse into this picture of what's happening on the other side, both heaven and hell. And um, Lazarus uh, was this poor man, and he was just longing to have even some of the crumbs that were following, uh, falling from the rich man's table. And eventually both of these guys die, and there's no legendary way of them dying either. It just records the rich man died as well as Lazarus died. It uh, don't matter how much money you have, you, you die just as well as the poor man. But uh, what ends up happening is the poor man is taken up um, and to be with Abraham, and we're told that the rich man is in Hades and in torment. And the story tells us that the rich man is just longing now to have the poor man give him just a drop of water, uh, to, to just 
have a little bit of something and the roles have been reversed and the story ends with the rich man wanting to have someone go and tell and warn his family about the torment that he's in and Abraham will say to him they have Moses and the prophets let them hear them and he says no father Abraham but if someone goes to them from the dead they will repent and he will say if they did not listen to Moses and the prophets they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead and so it's kind of this cool little story that makes us think about the afterlife and the finality of it that there is no crossing between these two places so we need to get our life together here now uh, before we get to that point. And so that that really is a cool story if you ever want to read that on your own. Mm-hmm. The following chapters uh, continue with the miracles and also the teachings of Jesus. Some of the famous ones, uh, you've got the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18, where again, mm-hmm. the tax collector, That's the outcast, one. is the one receiving forgiveness because he's humble, saying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Whereas the Pharisees proudly praying about how he's not like other people and gives and all this. Um, and another famous one is uh, in Luke 19, Jesus and Zacchaeus, um, a chief tax collector who is very penitent and willing to give, whereas tax, tax collectors were kind of known for um, cheating people out of their money, being dishonest. Um, and this is where Jesus finally does get to Jerusalem. And so the final movement of the Gospel of Luke has to do with Jesus' confrontations, um, as we see also in Matthew and Mark, um, when he finally does come into the city. I do think it's interesting that one difference is when Jesus rides into Jerusalem in what we call the triumphal entry, in Luke's gospel, he's actually weeping as he rides into the city, which is just a very powerful and kind of upside-down image. While the people are rejoicing and praising Jesus as this coming king, In Luke 19, verse 41, this is during the triumphal entry, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And he's going to go on after confronting some of the different leaders in Jerusalem in chapter 20 with these different questions they bring him. He's going to predict that the city's going to be destroyed. Mm -hmm. And this is just breaking his heart. I mean, Jesus says some very hard things about God's people and about Jerusalem. But we can see here that Jesus doesn't, he doesn't want to have to do that. But he's been kind of driven to it by their continued rejection, their continued rebelliousness against God and his word. And so Luke 21 is going to give us Luke's account of the foretelling of the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. The last thing I want to point out before we get into what will be the the last days and last hours of Jesus is as Jesus is in Jerusalem, chapter 19 ends by telling us that Jesus is daily teaching in the temple and the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men of the people were trying to destroy him and they could not find anything that they might do for all the people were hanging on to every word Jesus said. The people are behind Jesus. I don't want to overlook that because I I think when we get to the end, I think we're like, oh, so years passed by, the tide shifted, and people didn't like Jesus anymore. It is a matter of days between these people praising Jesus, him writing in as this king, and then these same people turning against him and wanting his death. Um, And so I just want to point that out because people are so fickle. Um, They are so quick to change, and there, there was no conviction there. 
And we cannot be like that when it comes to our dedication to Christ. We have got to be convicted and be willing to go to the grave with him. Yeah, that's right. And so as Jesus has come to Jerusalem, there's been increased conflict with the religious leaders. We now have Jesus in these final moments where he's sitting down for the final Passover with his disciples. There's the Lord's Supper. And I think it's interesting that Luke, again, slightly differently, it's during the Last Supper in Luke 22, verse 24, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Yep. <laughs> this conversation is in different places in the different Gospels. Of course, I think it happened multiple times. Oh, for sure. <laughs> but here, they're still arguing over who's the greatest. And like Jesus is literally the last night that he's with them before his death. And wow, uh, how frustrated Jesus must have felt um, about this. And according to says the same conversation about the Gentiles do that kind of stuff. You, you can't be this way among you. Um, and I also love that in Luke's gospel, there is a, an extra detail given to when Jesus foretells Peter's denial in the very next part, Luke 22, verse 31. Uh, it says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Yeah. What's interesting too about that is verse 31 where he says Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. In Greek that's actually plural. Um, Satan has demanded to sift y'all like wheat but I have prayed for you. Jesus is is praying for all of these disciples but he is also specifically addressing Simon Peter here. Yes. And and he knows that Peter's going to come back and I love that you know later we're going to have the letters of First and Second Peter. We're going to see in the book of Acts how after he returns, he does strengthen his brothers. And, and, and so again, it's just cool to think about you know, Luke recording these different details and then going on to record the fulfillment of them in part two in the book of Acts. And then Jesus will go into the garden uh, to pray. And he's got some of them with him, and he's telling them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And this is where Jesus um, kneels to pray and says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. And Luke's gospel includes for us, this is in Luke twenty two forty four. and being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is a glimpse into the Son of Man, the, the amount of sorrow that's on him to the degree in which his sweat is like blood drops. That is how much pressure he is under. And I don't fully understand the weight of the cross sometimes, but this is a great glimpse into Jesus wrestling with what he is about to go through. Yes. And so Luke, very similar to Matthew and Mark, will go on to record the quote-unquote trials of Jesus. Yeah. Um, these are mock trials that they've already decided the outcome and the verdict before they hear the testimony. Um, and they can't even get their act together. But Jesus basically walks right into their hands. He knows what he's doing and gives himself up to them by confessing to be the son. And he's handed over to Pilate because they, the Jews can't crucify him. They, they want him to not only die, but they want him to be tortured. Mm -hmm. And so they stir up the crowds. They get him before Pilate. Um, Pilate tries to punt to Herod. Um, 
Pilate is a coward in all of these accounts where he has the power to release Jesus. He can see the innocence of Jesus, but will not act because he's afraid of the people. And it's going to be interesting thinking about the portrayal of some of the leaders in these stories. Um, That's also going to go into the end of the book of Acts when Paul is before these different rulers who are cowards and who won't release him even though they know he's innocent. It's, It's really interesting seeing some of the parallels in Luke and Acts and how the leaders are portrayed. It it is interesting just thinking about Pilate. I mean, there are a couple of times he will deliberately say he's done nothing deserving of death. I'm just going to punish him and release him. And they are so persistent about it. It says in Luke 23, 22, he said to them the third time, three times Pilate says, what evil has this man done? But by the end, obviously, he delivers Jesus to their will. Mm-hmm. So Pilate, he stands up three times and says he's done nothing wrong, but eventually he folds. Um, and you see that coward, cowardly nature that Stephen was talking about. Yes. And so we have the crucifixion of Jesus. And Luke includes a couple of really interesting moments on the cross. I think perhaps the most powerful of which is Luke 23, verse 34, in which while he is being crucified... Luke 23, 34, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And I believe it's only Luke's gospel that has that. It's just amazing to think about the compassion of Jesus, even as he is literally being tortured to death by these people. He's calling on God to forgive them. He's released the desire for vengeance on them. Um, What an amazing example for us when it comes to forgiveness and compassion and patience. And also, there's a, Luke includes a story of one of the criminals uh, with him. Mm-hmm. We know that both of them were also hurling abuse, but at some point, one of the criminals realizes, hey, wait a minute, this is not right. And Jesus promises uh, to this penitent criminal, uh, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Yeah. And um, powerful, again, to think about the, the compassion, even to the end, that Jesus is showing to the outcast who is willing to change and willing to repent. Um, Even in his dying moments, he extends compassion to this thief uh, who is being crucified alongside of him. And at that point, darkness falls over the entire land um, until the ninth hour, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, so for three hours. And it kind of is symbolizing that the the light is going out of the world. Um, And the, the sun is obscured and the veil of the temple is torn in two. And so although the light is fading for a time, this light has just died for us so that there can be access to God. Because that veil in the temple was leaving us, or it was keeping us from being able to come to God in that complete way. I believe this is symbolizing that we can now come to, the God, to our God in this way. And it's at that point, um, Jesus will actually quote from Psalm 31, 5, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And the initial reply to that is certainly this man was innocent uh, by one of the centurions, but it was too little too late um, for them at that point, they are thinking. But it is just so hard to think about these gospel writers having to record the raw details of the crucifixion and just leave it as it was. And then a man named Joseph comes in, and he's described as being a part of the council, but Luke's gospel 
specifies for us that he had not consented to their plan and action to have Jesus crucified and that he was a God-fearing man that was waiting for the kingdom of, of God. He goes to Pilate and asks for the body of Jesus and lays him in his own tomb and is expecting you know, that to be Jesus' final resting place. This is where Jesus is going to stay, but we know the story ends differently. Yes. And so all four of the Gospels bring us to the empty tomb on the first day of the week, which I think it's interesting that none of the four Gospels actually record, and Jesus came out of the grave. And they give us a little bit of the background that we know that there was an angel who came, rolled the stone away. But when the women come to the tomb on the first day of the week, they are expecting to find the decaying body of their Lord. And instead they find angels proclaiming that he is not here for he has risen. Mm -hmm. Now, the Gospels do different post-resurrection appearances. In John's Gospel, we talked about he's got three different appearances to the twelve or the the ten and then the eleven. And then in Luke 24, I think we have one of the most interesting post-resurrection stories uh, where Jesus appears to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Fascinating conversation to think about. They don't recognize him. Yeah. And I really wish I could have been present for that. Yeah. Um, because it says, as uh, they're, you know, Jesus, in a sense, is kind of playing dumb in this conversation, saying, oh, hey, what, what's happened? You know, what's going on? And uh, in Luke 24 and verse um, 25, he's going to say, O foolish ones, and slow to heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Yeah. That's the sermon that contains all the sermons, yeah. right? I mean, like the whole Old Testament well, brought to light for them. And it kind of gives you a glimpse into, wow, so there's probably a lot more stuff in the Old Testament than we realize that is talking about yes. Jesus. And it really, I think this verse kind of sets us up to want to go back to the Old Testament and read it with the lens of Jesus in mind. And it really brings to life a lot of the things um, that you read about. And e- even stories like the book of Job, uh, you, you read through it and you think it's just some story, but you really start to see Christ even in that. And so it really is, a, it's amazing to think about Jesus explaining this just to these two guys um, that he's walking with. But as they approach this village, um, it says in, in verse 28 where they were going, he acted as though he were going farther. But they urged him, they wanted him to stay with him. So he reclines at the table with them, takes bread, blesses it, and then their eyes are opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And it's just such a unique little story uh, that's, that has the post-resurrected Christ in it. But then Jesus, he has some other people he needs to go to. Yes, he um, appears to his disciples and they're afraid. They think they see a spirit. And it's here in Luke's gospel that he records specifically that this is not a ghost. This is not a spiritual resurrection. This is a physical bodily resurrection. In verse 38, Luke 24, 38, And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. So Luke is very adamant that this is a physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus. He's eating with them. They've got some broiled fish (laughs) right here. And they're eating with him after his resurrection. 
And again, there's an emphasis here on the fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. In verse 44, he says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their mind to understand the scriptures. And so Luke's gospel is going to end with him opening their minds to understand all the Old Testament prophecies about him. And then he's going to say in verse 48, You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So it's kind of this cliffhanger, like Mm -hmm. there's power coming to you, stay in Jerusalem until then, and that's where the book of Acts is going to pick up. Luke does have a a short account of the ascension at the end of this gospel, and he's going to re-record it in Acts 1. Yes, he's going to like back up and be like, all right, let's give more detail here, because he does record... Uh, In verse 51, while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. But there is more to this story, and that's where it picks up in Acts, the first chapter. And so that's why you can understand why we kind of broke it up the way that we did. Um, Because if you were reading through the New Testament in one go, it would make sense to end Luke and then pick up in Acts as they are both recording Um, or recorded from the same author. Um, And so, Lord willing, that's what we're going to get into next week is the book of Acts. Yes. So Luke and Acts, written by the same author, following some of the same patterns. Again, watch for the outcasts, watch for prayer, the role of women, the role of the Holy Spirit as we get into Acts next week. But it's just really cool to see these two books put together and read as part one and part two of the same story. And we, we hope that this was helpful to kind of look at the four Gospels as an overview and, um, and see the need to get into them individually and not to just have an overall understanding of Jesus' ministry, but really see who, what the point and purposes of these authors were. Um, it's really beautiful to break that down and see it. So we hope that was helpful. And so, Lord willing, we will jump right into the next phase of Christianity in the book of Acts next week. Thank you all for listening to the podcast today. If you're enjoying what you hear, please subscribe or leave us a rating or a review. If you'd like to study the Bible with us, we'd love to do that with you. 717-585-0949 or email us at capitalcitychristians at gmail.com. Or for more information on group studies and worship, check out capitalcitychristians.com.